Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, reflections on 2020, the pandemic, politics, and calls for racial justice. Dr. Bernice King offers insight and why her father, Martin Luther King Jr.'s principles of nonviolence remain relevant to this day. That's the way I look at everything. What is my ultimate goal? Is my ultimate goal just to feel better, to get off an emotional high and feel like, yeah, I got them back? Or is my goal really to bring about change and create the beloved community? And for me, that's what it is. And so I have to think about what is the manner to get there? That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this concerns about an increase from new cases to hospitalizations is now prompting Governor Brian Kemp to issue a cautionary message to Georgians. Over the last 30 days, the highest percentage of new cases has come from individuals that are between 18 and 29 years of age. And while death in this category are thankfully very low, these individuals can bring the virus home with them during the holidays to their parents, grandparents, and others who are more vulnerable. That is why with New Year's Eve this Thursday, limit your gatherings to small groups of people within the same household. Consider gathering virtually to watch the ball drop. Consider the risk of including elderly loved ones or those more susceptible to the virus and implement the best practices and public health guidance outlined in our orders into your plans. Which leads to this. At the time of this broadcast, 552,712 COVID-19 cases have now been confirmed here in Georgia. 41,403 have been hospitalized, and of those, 7,322 considered ICU admissions. And since the state began recording these numbers in March, 9,759 Georgians have died due to the virus. As always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Now, depending on what county you live in, early in-person voting ends tomorrow. But please check with your local elections folks or just head to the Secretary of State's website to find out because you don't want to show up and then the polls are closed. And of course, the final day of voting, well, will be January 5th, which is next Tuesday. Now, these two Senate races are high stakes and will determine who controls the U.S. Senate. We've been saying it a lot, right? And as a result, turnout is key. Well, joining me now as this final week of early in-person voting comes to a close to update us on all of this, as he's been doing all this year, is WAB reporter Emil Moffat. Emil, thanks for taking the time. Boy, I, you, if anyone is going to be glad when January 5th is over, it's going to be you, right? <laughs> hey, Rose, yeah, looking forward to, to the end of elections for, for at least a little while. Well, we still have an election special on uh, next Tuesday night, so you can't, you know, take a break until then. <laughs> I'll be there. Well, let's let's begin with what they say is key, which is turnout for for both parties here in these runoff races. So far, is there any indication if more of an advantage for the Democrats in early in-person voting? Or what do you know about who's voted so far? Well, there certainly has been a push by Democrats. We saw it back in November and we've seen it in January as well to get out the vote early, whether it's early in person or by mail. 
Uh, so far, we've seen about 2.3 million people have voted so far ahead of the January 5th runoff. Um, we do know some percentage breakdowns as far as demographics go. We've seen about 55% of the turnout has been white voters. 31% has been black voters, which is slightly above what we've seen in recent years, uh, and about 5% when you combine the, the Hispanic and Asian uh, vote. So this turnout compared to what we saw in the general election is, it's more, more folks, right? It is. It especially was early on, the first week or so of early voting um, back in mid the middle part of this month, we saw a really strong turnout and above what we saw in the November early voting period. That has slowed down a little bit as we got into the Christmas week. And of course, there were a couple of days there where there wasn't voting because of the holidays. And so we've seen it uh, downturn slightly as compared to November but it's largely been because of the, the holiday factor. Now, we also understand that there's been a slight increase uh, in terms of voters 18 to 29. For those 18-year-olds, this is for some of them the first time voting. So much has been paid to the younger and millennial voters getting them to turn out. Is that continuing? It is, and we've seen that the percentage of younger voters, uh, if you, if you want to uh, classify uh, younger voters as, as those under the age of 50. We've seen that percentage go up even in the last week or so. Um, and as you mentioned, some of those uh, people who have turned 18 since uh, the general election, they are voting for the first time and may not have had the chance because of their age uh, to vote in the general election, but now have a chance to make a difference in the runoff. So we are seeing that become a little bit of a factor and you never know as close as these races uh, are, are likely to be, that could make uh, a difference. Well, and speaking of making a difference, the Georgia Secretary of State's office did come under fire after some counties closed their early sites, which were actually open back in November. Has all that been cleared up? What do we know about these counties? The Secretary of State's office will always say that it is up to counties to determine the early voting sites and the times and how many are open. Uh, but we have seen um, some areas, especially in Cobb County and in Hall County, uh, where not as many polling sites were open for the early voting period as we saw in November. And voting rights groups have pointed out that they are uh, sometimes in areas, a lot of times in areas with uh, large populations of minority voters. Um, and counties have said that they did this based on projected turnout, turnout for runoffs as well as some staffing consideration. We had the long drawn out process in the November election where these uh, counties just put in tons of hours mm -hmm. uh, with all the recounts and whatnot. And so there was some staffing issues, especially with the holidays. People uh, didn't necessarily have that time to devote as they did in November. Um, Cobb County did add two early voting sites for the final week of early voting. Hall County has not. Um, but uh, but there has been a push to try and get some of these early voting sites reopened uh, from what they were in November. Now, Emil, for some folks who still have their absentee ballot and they haven't mailed it yet, is a recommendation that they go ahead and place it in one of those drop boxes or should they still try to go ahead and send it through the mail the old fashioned way? The best uh, recommendation that's been given by counties right now at this point is to, if you can, if you have the means to go buy an absentee ballot drop box, put it in there because then you know that you're not going to have to deal with um, the mail delays. And we certainly saw that over the holidays a lot with, uh, with mail being delayed and just an overwhelming amount of mail. Uh, so just to be absolutely safe and to be sure that it's not going to get lost in the mail or not going to be delayed in the mail and getting to where it's supposed to be, use the Dropbox if at all possible, and that way you kind of cut out the middleman. And Emil, in Georgia, now the ballots have to be received by the county on Election Day, which would be, which would be January 5th, in order to count, correct? That's right. Uh, seven o'clock on election night is when the drop boxes uh, are locked and they're emptied for the final time. So uh, you want to make sure that your absentee ballot is back to your county by 7 p.m. on election night. Well, Emil, let's um, this is part of the conversation where we talk about Fulton County. <laughs> Our Fulton uh, County section. <laughs> right. What are you hearing in terms of having enough folks to work in the polling locations on, on Tuesday. Uh, there's always some concerns. What are you hearing as it relates to Fulton County? They get called out a lot. 
They, they do. And, uh, you know, there, there was some concerns, not only because of the holiday and because the long drawn out process in November, but also because of some of the security concerns that we, we heard about of, of workers, poll workers being under increased scrutiny of some receiving threats, uh, even in Fulton County. I had a chance to talk to Rob Pitts, uh, the chairman of Fulton County, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he felt confident with the, the number of applications they got to work the polls uh, coming into November, uh, that they had enough people to staff the polling sites and to staff uh, the uh, absentee ballot processing, uh, that they weren't going to have any trouble uh, staffing this election. But we'll see as we get closer to Election Day if that uh, if that holds true. Well, speaking of Election Day, actually the day before, a pretty big visitor is going to come to Georgia. President Donald Trump has made it very clear that he would be here on January 4th up in northwest part of Georgia to give Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue a little bit of a push, huh? Yeah, and it's it's been an interesting uh, tightrope that both uh, Leffler and Perdue have had to walk uh, in this runoff election because on one hand, they have been very loyal to the president in his unfounded claims of widespread voter fraud in Georgia, uh, but at the same time, asking people to go and vote for them and trust that the system is going to work. And so they've been really trying to walk, walk that tightrope. We've also seen uh, a lot of fallout with uh, regards to the stimulus checks mm-hmm. uh, that that um, Purdue and Leffler were touting that they had gotten those $600 checks. And then all of a sudden, President Trump was saying, no, it should be 2,600 is a terrible deal. And now you're having to see uh, both Leffler and Purdue backtrack a bit on that. So he certainly put them in a tough position uh, in a number of regards uh, in this runoff, but he's going to try to come and and smooth things over uh, the night before the election. Are we seeing any indication from from some of these early polling? What we're seeing is that um, just like we expected, it's going to be a very close race. And I think uh, nobody is ready to to project victory uh, right now from either side. I think the the race is just going to be razor thin, as we saw at the presidential race, as we saw uh, even with the um, the general election between uh, Purdue and Ossoff, um, that it's going to be very close. And so I think uh, we're expecting to see more of that. Um, and of course, that could could play into how long we actually have to wait to to find out the results. Well, speaking of results, um, do you want to go ahead and take a shot at whether or not we will have a clear winner on the night of January 5th? I don't think we'll have one on the night of January 5th, just with the number of absentee ballots that are being cast for this election. Uh, Even though counties in this particular election uh, are required to start processing those uh, a couple of days ago at the beginning of this week, um, I still think we're going to see a backlog of absentee ballots. So it could be um, a, a day or two, possibly two or three days before we get the final results, especially if these uh, races are as close as they're being predicted to be. WABE reporter Emil Moffitt, he's been following all of this all year long, elections, voting, all of that. Emil, as always, we appreciate you so much for taking the time. And of course, you'll we'll be together on January 5th, along with some other WABE colleagues and NPR folks, as we actually are going to broadcast live that night, January 5th. So, Emil, I'll see you on the Zoom then. <laughs> Looking forward to it, Rose, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Emil. Take care. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. I know for many of you, 2020 can't come to end fast enough. I get it. After all, it's been quite a year. The pandemic and how it exasperated all the inequities and disparities that already existed. 
the presidential election and everything that came with it leading up to Election Day and what still continues. The protests and calls for racial justice and the opposition to the movement. As we continue our conversations with area leaders to reflect on 2020 and they'll also offer insight into 2021. My next guest is often called upon to not only address a lot of these issues, but also offer pathways to solutions, as in the past year's calls for racial justice. It's been a lifelong work that is not surprising. Considered a global thought leader, speaker, and CEO of the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, the King Center, of course, founded by her mother, Coretta Scott King. Joining me now is Dr. Bernice King. Thank you, as always. Good to speak to you again. Good to be with you, Rose, once again, in spite of the pandemic. I know. <laughs> Let me ask you this before we get into our conversation. How, how have you been doing? Um, I've been doing good, uh, actually, in, in spite of everything. Uh, when, everything when the pandemic first started, uh, like probably everybody else, uh, kind of panicked, uh, freaked out, uh, and went through bouts of up and down. I won't call it depression per se, mm -hmm. but it was akin to it. Uh, because this notion of being uh, sh shut down, closed in, confined, um, and God, is this going to be our total reality? And what am I going to do? Because I'm so used to going, mm -hmm. you know, as most, as all of a lot of us um, on a daily basis and then traveling. Uh, so I had to find a, a new, I call it a new space in my brain since we have so many cells that are unused uh, to create uh, my new normal of sanity, mm -hmm. uh, to be, to be frank with you. And of course, as I was, uh, uh, asked to join the uh, subcommittee, community outreach subcommittee of the governor's uh, uh, task, COVID task force, uh, that began to help with channeling some of my energy as we mm -hmm. began at the King Center uh, to envision um, a new normal and how we move forward into this whole virtual world that began to help. And, uh, you know, everything else that unfolded, the unfortunate things that unfolded, uh, with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. um, and George Floyd, and so many others, uh, it, it helped to really stabilize and focus my my energy. And so, been doing well, and you know, just making sure I keep my you know mask on when I'm mm -hmm. out and about, and uh, building up my immune system. So I, I really focus a lot on health and wellness, just in general. Um, and so no different in this pandemic and doing the things that are necessary in consultation with uh, my doctor. I have a very special doctor, and I thank mm -hmm. God for her. Mm. So, yeah. I want to focus on the police killing of George Floyd. You've seen the video, I, I take it. Yes. When, <laughs> when you saw it the first time. Yeah. Can you take me through your emotions? Um, you know, one thing that has helped me with being able to respond to things like that is uh, realizing that we have to be able to um, discipline our emotions in a way that they're not destructive, mm -hmm. self-destructive or outwardly destructive. And having a history where things like that would send me off Mm -hmm. Um, I well understand how, how, uh, uh, dangerous that can be. And so when I first saw it, I was very sad. I felt anger like all of us, uh, a lot of us did. I won't say all, but a lot of us did, but I recognize that we live, we, we live in a very, um, sick society that there's sick people um in our world um and some of it is because of the way they were raised uh the cultures that they were raised in um some of it is uh because we have failed to put proper policies in place uh that would at least put people on notice mm -hmm. that this is behavior that is not to be tolerated even when you have a badge um, and so after I went through my 
sadness and my anger, you know, being grounded in nonviolence and in my Christian faith, I recognize that I have to channel that um, in a manner that can be helpful uh, with other people and their emotions. And also, how do we really begin the process of addressing um, police reform and systemic racism, ultimately, because what feeds into all of this uh, really is just white supremacy. Hmm. And it's, uh, it's throughout all of our systems. And we're at, a, we're at a point now that we must, and I believe we will address it. It will not be a short journey. It's going to be a marathon that's going to require vigorous, diligent, um, determined, zealous um, action on our part um, and thinking on our part because it's not as easy as, you know, just put this in place and just put this in place. We're dealing with the minds and the hearts of people that have to be transformed at the same time that we are putting policies and legislation in place. So that's, you know, that's where I was. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't fly off the handle like I would have historically <laughs> and lost it. Yeah. What I found a lot of times is when, when that happened to me historically, the targets are the people closest to you. Yeah. And that's why I realized you have to learn how to channel that kind of stuff because you hurt people closer to you than the people that triggered all of this. Yeah. <laughs> that's usually how it, how it happens. In fact, you even took to social media and you stated, because as you know, with some of the protests that, for whatever reason, took a violent and destructive turn, I wrote it down here. Nonviolence is not weak or passive. Nonviolence is active and aggressive. It is strategic with an ultimate goal. It seeks true peace, which equals justice. Even if you disagree with it as a method for social change, I still hear you and love you. You are an answer and a solution. If you want to call them the young folks, and I don't want to put it all on the younger folks who were obviously upset, and you made this plea, um, particularly here in Atlanta, which you of all people know its history, did you receive any pushback from others saying, why that pathway? These folks are hurting. They're tired of seeing black and brown people die at the hands of police officers. Did you get that pushback at all, that feedback from, from others? You know, I, I, I don't get a lot of that, probably because I have a balanced approach in, in the way that I speak to all of these issues. Um, I speak holistically to, you know, the, the people who perpetuate these kind of actions. I speak about that and where this comes from, it's oftentimes putting in context um, my father's uh, saying that violence is the language of the unheard and, mm -hmm. and, and really bring into uh, the, the surface that these, these kind of reactions come out of something that is being perpetuated in society. Um, and so, no, not, not really. Um, there are people that perhaps um, don't agree, but they know who I am. Um, yeah. I've been very clear consistently in terms of who I am. And I think they, either, even if they don't agree with me, I think most of them respect the fact that I've been through a process. I'm not just speaking in an ivory tower. Mm -hmm. You know, I live in a time period during our, you know, the day and age when, when I was, you know, their age, there were things that we were fighting at the same time. So I understand activism. You know, I come through a family that, you know, lived under the under the threat all the time of, of being the, killed and destroyed, um, even during my mother's lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so I clearly understand the the pain, the suffering. I'm, I'm a black woman in America. Um, and um, I recognize the things that we face. I can't, from a um, existential plant standpoint, I can't understand fully the black male experience, but I, I'm close enough being a black woman. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, um, in spite of all of that, because I was on that side where at one point in my life, I was so pro-black, I was so angry with white people and, and really hated white people 
to the point of really hating white men. Um, and I had to I had to get through that because it was not, again, as I said earlier, it was hurting me more than it was the person I was hating mm-hmm. um, because it was just against all white people. But how productive and constructive is that? Uh, and so I had to learn that there are ways to channel these emotions into constructive action, into strategic action that can begin to eradicate uh, these um, these evils. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to destroy people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a Christian, I have to follow um, what I believe, and that's the will of the Father that none perish, but that every person come to p- repentance. And so my goal is not to destroy the person, as, as nonviolence teaches, but to destroy the evil that all of us are exposed to and some people are working on behalf of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, most people, most people um, are, are not evil. You know, if, I, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. They have been processed through life um, in, in, in ways that, um, you know, uh, are unfortunate. Um, but they can, I believe people can be reached. Not everybody. Yeah. But I believe people can be reached. It's happened. It's happened in history. And I know some people say, yeah, if you just, you know, you're not just threaten violence, but if you do unto them as they do unto you, they'll come to their senses. That doesn't work for everybody. I mean, so that's why I can't, I, I can't approach anything from a narrow perspective like that. I got to approach it from what holistically is the best way forward to the goal? Because that's that's the way I look at everything. What is my ultimate goal? Is my ultimate goal just to feel better, you know, to get off an emotional high, you know, and, and feel like, yeah, I got them back? Or is my goal really to bring about change and create the beloved community? And for me, that's what it is. And so I have to think about what is the manner to get there? And violence doesn't get you there. In this moment, we've been in in 2020 and the calls for racial reconciliation or racial awakening or whatever you want to call it. And I think I've asked you this before, Dr. King, because is there something different about this year's movement that really, really leads you to believe that there is a, some actionable outcomes, whether it's because there's a new administration or because you saw for the first time so many different people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and religions and and age groups out protesting and marching and demanding justice. Is that what is different about this year's movement that gives you optimism for change? Well, well, first of all, change is never inevitable. It has to have pressure. And so the pressure of the universe through the pandemic forced us to have to contend with these things in ways that we haven't um, in, in, in many years, uh, right in our face, mm-hmm. people had to watch George Floyd because it was everywhere and you couldn't escape into the confines of a busy schedule. Um, you had to look right at this, um, unfortunate, um, action, um, that took the life of a very valuable, all human beings are valuable, but it took the life of a human being, um, And so I believe the pandemic intersecting with the energy of this generation that has refused to let up around Black lives mattering um, has made a tremendous difference and has shocked the conscience of a number of people, Hmm. um, a diverse um, group of people. And because I've been privy to conversations um, with people who sit in seats of influence and power um, in different sectors, and and many of them being white, um, some of them white males, and really seeing the wrestling with uh, how do we change this, and some making commitments to going a different way. Um, I believe it. it's different because of that, that there are a lot of white folks leaning in that haven't leaned in before. Mm. You know, the ones that are the typical, you know, we expect, 
as they say, a certain kind of white, liberal, more civic-minded person to get involved. But when you get the corporate types mm. that are now getting involved and participating in creating plans of action uh, to change and talking about Black Lives Matter uh, in an unapologetic manner that they didn't even prior to February, March. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and talking about, you know, white supremacy. I've never heard that before. In all my years of speaking, uh, preaching, meeting with people, I've never heard white people talk in this vein and, and not just rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, this, this is a very hopeful moment. But again, it's not going to be easy. And we have to be careful in the black community because we have a, a messianic complex. And what I mean by that is we always historically have looked for leaders to rescue us. Um, and I believe in leadership, you know, because I'm, I'm from the di- a different generation that respects the power of leadership uh, and understand the importance of having leadership protocols. But the, but the danger is when we resign ourselves to just relying upon the leader to get us there. And I think that's what happened to many of us when President, uh, Senator Obama was elected to be President Obama. And that's what's facing us now with President-elect Biden and, and Vice President-elect Harris. Uh, the, the temptation to settle in and say, okay, we got our person and everything's going to be all right now and kind of go back into our little silos. That's what I'm concerned about. So then what is the pathway to make sure that the black community doesn't just settle and fall back into that familiar role of just we have the leadership now and not hold anybody accountable? Well, the greatest pathway is if we did what my father challenged us to do in 67 in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos of Community. Mm -hmm. He talked about the nettlesome task, which means it's irksome. It's not easy. It's going to require a lot of effort and energy. But he said the nettlesome task is to organize our strength into compelling power. Right now, there are many um, efforts, many uh, organizations, there are many um, people that have been working for uh, police reform. Uh, There have been many people working around the issue of racial um, and economic equity. Those individuals, us, as I count myself among that, have to be determined and figure out how to organize ourselves to adequately address in a agenda format these issues. We, we We cannot let up. Because we're in the zone now. So we got to stay in the zone. Um, And uh, like Black Voters Matter, it's wonderful. That has to stay. We have to commit to that. Um, And um, I I just think, Rose, honestly, there is a groundswell of things happening now that may not be, you know, in the lights and everybody may not know about them, but a pocket of people know about them. I think we're in a gear now that we're not going to downshift. I, I just, I really believe that because there are some efforts happening now um, that people really have their heart, soul, and energy in. Uh, and and I don't, I think there's enough of those that inspire the people that may let, <laughs> let down and relax. Um, we're still going to have some momentum. That being said, as we wrap up, Dr. King, going into 2021, and you and I kind of talked about a little bit before we look, 2021 doesn't mean the pandemic is going to magically disappear. All these other issues we've been dealing with You talked about optimism, but I know you have some concerns about how do we get through 2021, too, as well. What will you all focus on? You focus on so much over at the center, but will you will you hone in on some other specific initiatives? 
in 2021? Well, you know, we focus heavily on education and training. And the reason I say that is because as I looked at the landscape of um, um, social justice, the landscape of my father's uh, triple evils of poverty, racism, militarism, I recognize that there's a lot of energy and effort from different organizations and entities. But what seems to be missing is this whole manner in which you effectively bring about social change. And we have to be educated and trained in that. My father and them had an effective manner. Nonviolence was the effective way. As I said, you said in that tweet, it's very strategic. Mm-hmm. It's Nonviolence is not just uh, an act of uh, refraining from hitting somebody. It actually is a way of thinking and engaging and speaking and planning. Um, and, and people don't know that. They, when they see the word nonviolence, they take it as the opposite of violence. It's actually a prescription uh, for violence. It is not the opposite of, of violence. Um, and so we will be focusing more heavily on our nonviolence uh, 365 education and training, getting into the corporate sector, um, hopefully outreaching even into your community, because we've got to change people's frame of thinking as it relates to creating change mm-hmm. in a world where you cannot, I don't care how much you try to rid it of people, I'm gonna put it in some people's terms, people who are evil, what I don't I don't call people evil, but I'm just using it for this conversation. Mm-hmm. You cannot do enough to try to rid of people. And so it's better to utilize our energy to get rid of the injustices and put our energy there and create a world and a society where people who are quote unquote evil are not comfortable with being evil because there's no place, there's no place of comfort for them. Mm -hmm. So they have to adjust. They have to change. Um, Even if it means they got to suppress themselves, if they refuse to just, you know, transform. Um, And so that's the, that's what we're going to be, you know, heavily focusing on um, um, next year um, with the the beloved community uh, talks and conversations. We're really going to delve more heavily into that. And then we're going to work in concert with what Brian Stevenson is, is doing around truth telling. Yeah. You know, we're not going to get to the beloved community until we have truth telling. You know, people want to quickly get to reconciliation and healing. And I'm like, no, healing starts with telling the truth first. You know, when a couple has uh, a major disagreement or there's a there's a there's a tear in a relationship in a marriage, for instance, you don't just restore that marriage by just saying, "Okay, I'm sorry, move on. There's some steps that have to be taken by the person who did the, the wrongdoing. And there's some truths that have to be expressed and come to grips with before you can even get to that. Path. And you know that is not easy for some folks. No, it's not. <laughs> but it is essential. It is necessary. Mm-hmm. And if not, and I'll leave you with this. Uh, when Daddy said, and where do we go from here, something else. That book is powerful, by the way, for your listeners. I, I just encourage people to read it because it's as if he's with us today. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing the first part of it. He said, if we do not prioritize justice, then what we will witness is that social tension, and this is the exact part, social tension will grow and turbulence in the streets will persist. Mm -hmm. That's where we are right now. And so our efforts to educate and train people to understand how to create a more just, humane, equitable, and peaceful world through the nonviolent philosophy methodology of my father, which we obviously call Nonviolence 365 as a lifestyle. Dr. Bernice King, 
as always, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the work that you all have been doing over at the King Center. I really appreciate it. Happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays to you all. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Yes, you've heard me say it a lot. It's been an extraordinary year. Alongside colleagues in the WABE newsroom, we've probably worked harder than ever to bring you the news and information during this time. And I know 95% of our coverage was pandemic related, but rightfully so. We also asked, where does Atlanta go from here? after protests and violent aftermaths. Yes, it's my city, and I'm deeply sad in what I'm looking at here today. I saw this city take off when I was 18 years old in the 70s, when it began to really grow and prosper to where it is now. This is a major setback for Atlanta right here. We people who are darker than blue and all this can be rebuilt, but it's tarnished. And let what others say come true. We're just good. There is something different about this moment. A boy's I think a lot of our white brothers and sisters are starting to look in the mirror and ask themselves, like, okay, maybe I am a part of the problem. Maybe my silence is a part of the problem. Atlanta has always been a strong city. We're different than other cities, you know? From here, exactly what you see today, we're already rebuilding our city. We're already taking care of each other, you know? Atlanta is a strong city, and I think from here we can just promote change. You're just the surface of our dark, deep well. If your mind could really see, you'd know your color is same as me. For decades, longer than I've been alive, we've seen people unjustly killed, unjustly jailed or oppressed, and it's finally come to a head. So the conversations that I had with my son late last night while we were watching this, and he was like, Dad, why are they destroying my city? And I paused for a moment, and I said, son, people are angry, people are hurt, and they are acting out but that's not the way to do it. And he was like, how do we do it? And I paused and he was like, is it love? And my son is six year old. He, he's, he talked about love. Pay tribute to civil rights legends. Congressman John Lewis, Reverend Joseph Lawry, and Reverend C.T. Vivian. I think they both would probably want to be remembered as people who had to suffer from pain inflicted on them, but they never, ever retaliated. Reverend Vivian said when that, uh, the sheriff hit him, mm-hmm. he said hit him so hard across the bridge of his nose that knocked his teeth out and everything, and it hurt but he said, I'm not here to nurse made my condition. I'm here to make change. Um, John Lewis said the beatings hurt, yes. And he talks about how many times he was arrested, how many times he was beaten, he said, but I got up and I continued. I was looking for victory. I wanted to win this awful war of hatred and bigotry. And I was willing to suffer to get it. And it paid off, because now we're praising him for that great work. We're tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom, and we want it now. And gave us everything. I gave a little blood on that bridge in Selma 53 years ago. I almost died. 
Some of my friends and colleagues were murdered in Mississippi and other places. I'm not asking any of you to give any blood. I'm just asking you to go and vote like you never voted before. We have to vote. Be kind, be hopeful, be optimistic. Never get down. It's all going to be okay. All going to be all right. We're one people. We're one family. We all live in the same house. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, that's something. Do something. Get in trouble. Good trouble. Necessary trouble. I think we could learn patience, diligence, absolutely, um, and staying the course. I think sometimes we might get a little too, we're, we're quick to see change because we want to see change happen quickly, but he recognized that change takes time. And I think that's something that we really need to learn from him, that change absolutely takes time. It took time for us to get here and it's going to take time for it to change. Keep on pushing. Hey, hey. I tell you, he's, he's an amazing individual. Um, just the, the fight that he had and like being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and still being able to just support all the causes that are out there even though he had that fight himself. It is it's tough and it's we need more people like him. Growing up in Atlanta and then in the last few years of a lot of political upheaval, I've just known him as one of the constants in the fight for justice. We need a million of him on this earth and I'm just so sad that he is gone. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure. Oh, glory. We join in prayer for a nation that strangely enough continues to seek to deny rights and restrict freedom in the right to vote. We come today 50 years later. It's even stranger that there are men and forces who still seek to restrict our vote and deny our full participation. Well, we come here to Washington to say, we ain't going back. We ain't going back. We've come too far, marched too long, prayed too hard, whipped too bitterly, bled too profusely, and died too young to let anybody turn back the clock on our journey to justice. Oh. And we strive to highlight the spirit of compassion and humanity during a pandemic and those working on the front line. But when this vaccine came both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine came to us. I was excited. And then when I got my email to give me the opportunity to get this vaccine, um, I can't tell you how excited it was. And then when I, um, I have to really, sorry, I'm 
I'm still pretty emotional about it. It, it okay. has been just a tremendous effort on so many people to make this what it is today. And then when I walked into our facility here at Emory Healthcare, which I have to compliment our, our leadership for just having the most amazing vaccination campaigning clinic I've ever seen. Um, when I walked in the door, I had the opportunity to receive the vaccine from my friend, my colleague, Jill Morgan, who was the nurse who with together that we admitted the first patient with Ebola um, back in 2014 together. Mm -hmm. And then she gave me my COVID vaccine. Um, I can't tell you what a tremendous day that was for me and my family. Um, and it really is a triumph of science. The stories behind these two vaccines are tremendous and the impact is going to be absolutely wonderful for all of our communities. So that's it for this last edition of Closer Look for the year 2020. I couldn't have done this job this year without the help of some very talented folks. Our former senior producer, Candace Wheeler. Our current producers, Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Engineers, Shelly Canavy, Richard Firth, and Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike, you know. Our colleagues from the digital side of things and the fine folks in IT. Also, our buddies over in City Lights, led by Lois Reitzes, the WABE Newsroom, and always a big thanks to Emil Moffitt for keeping Closer Look listeners up to date with elections and voting news, as well as Sam Whitehead's continuous coronavirus reporting. To all the guests who made time to join us via Zoom, and we told you to mute your computer sounds, and some of you did and some of you didn't, that's okay. And to you, the listener, we say thank you. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Happy New Year. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 